0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive
1: Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at NPR.org. What do you do when a train carrying toxic chemicals crashes in your town? East Palestine, Ohio, is finding out the hard way. The train derailed earlier this month, but the mess still isn't cleaned up. Now officials are playing the blame game with East Palestine residents stuck in the middle. Norfolk Southern Railway is the company that operated that train. Their CEO, Alan Shaw, spoke with PBS NewsHour this week.
2: We're going to see this thing through. Uh, that's my commitment to the community of East Palestine. We're going to invest in the environmental cleanup. We are, have made a lot of progress. We've got air monitoring, water monitoring. We're coordinating with the Ohio EPA. We're continuing to provide financial assistance for the citizens of this community.
1: The crash happened on the Pennsylvania border. On Tuesday, Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro announced he'd made a criminal referral on the case.
3: The combination of Norfolk Southern's corporate greed, incompetence, and lack of care
2: for our residents is absolutely unacceptable to me.
1: What's next for East Palestine residents? Trains roll through America's small towns every day. So who's responsible when things go so wrong? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to cover. Stay with us.
3: Big news stories don't always break on your schedule, but with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
1: These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth Let's get into our discussion of the East Palestine train derailment. Joining us to talk about what we know about the situation and what the response has been is Zara Hirji. She's a reporter covering climate for Bloomberg. Zara, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Also with us Samantha Montano. She's an assistant professor of emergency management at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She's also the author of Disasterology: Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Samantha, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Edward Boyer. He's a medical toxicologist and professor of emergency medicine at the Ohio State University School of Medicine. Dr. Boyer, it's great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Samantha, it's been a few weeks since the train derailment. Take us back to February 3rd. What have we learned about what caused the derailment?
3: Yeah, so uh, the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, is responsible for investigating the actual cause. Um, It looks like it it was related potentially to uh, one of the wheels on the train um, that led to the derailment. Um, And that is really what set off this chain of events in Ohio.
1: And how quickly were residents informed of the danger they were in?
3: So uh, evacuation orders started going out relatively soon after the derailment. Um, people did begin to evacuate. There were some shelters that had been opened in town. Um, some nearby hotels opened their doors. Uh, but it has been a really slow and kind of confusing process of residents learning and better understanding what their actual risk has been at various points of the incident.
1: Dr. Boyer, what do we know about the chemicals that were being transported on this train? The chemicals that were on this train, by and large, were
2: monomers used to polymerize and make larger plastics. Lumped in there will be chemicals that are intended to prevent the spontaneous polymerization from occurring. Uh, and then there were some other, there's another chemical, I think it was uh, ethylene glycol monobutyl ether, uh, which you know can be used in a
1: number of industrial processes. We've also heard mention of vinyl chloride. What is vinyl chloride? What is it used for? So vinyl chloride actually has a
2: really interesting... Um, Really interesting history it was used as a propellant it was used in hairsprays for years um it's also been used now uh in plastic manufacture. so the white pipe you buy at one of the big box hardware stores are you know pvc um there can be different things added to it to make it more or less flexible but it's a widely used plastic um in the you know home industries and in electronics uh, all across all across society, there are wide uses for polyvinyl chloride, and it's made from its monomer
1: vinyl chloride. And why is that chemical harmful to humans?
2: Yeah, when you inhale it, you you know you breathe it in through the lungs. It goes to the liver and it gets converted by an enzyme in the liver. It's called uh, it's called cytochrome CYP two E one, and it forms a highly reactive intermediate that uh, reacts specifically with. Um, uh, molecules on you know that are found in the body some of which include DNA so um, when you have alkylation of DNA then you get misreads and the outcome of long-term exposure to poly- polyvinyl chloride in occupational settings is uh, is um, hepatic angiosarcoma. So it's a highly specific, it's a rare but specific type of cancer that is caused by polyvinyl chloride. And there's a number of epidemiologic uh, studies to prove uh, that that uh, causation exists.
1: Nazara, soon after the crash, officials authorized a so-called controlled explosion. Explain what that is and what purpose it served.
5: So this was done... As Ohio Governor Mike DeWine kind of described it in a press briefing, that they had these two bad options. If the train derailment occurred, the train derailment occurred on, as you mentioned, the night of Friday, February 3rd. Over the weekend, basically by the evening of Sunday, February 5th, it had been discovered that the temperature in one of the cars that was holding one of the toxic chemicals was rising. I believe it wasn't even a car that had derailed, Um, but the temperature was rising and it was getting to a dangerous situation where the concern was, as the governor had described it, there could be a catastrophic explosion that could send shrapnel very far away and everyone wanted to basically avoid that situation. And so they decided there was modeling done, um, that it could be better since That was probably going to be inevitable. If nothing happened, then instead they would try and do a more controlled release, a.k.a. controlled explosion of the chemicals instead, which did involve venting and releasing chemicals in, I believe, up to five different car trains. And ahead of this, they did yet another round of evacuations to make sure that people were not in the area when they were known to be releasing a large quantity of these toxic chemicals into the air.
1: Now, Samantha, how soon after the accident and the controlled explosion were East Palestine residents told it was safe to return?
3: Um, They were told um, within a couple of days. Um, But again, there's been some back and forth uh, in terms of water testing and air testing that has been done by various parties that have left residents, or at least many residents, kind of in a state of limbo about whether or not it actually is safe for them to return.
1: Well, and how is it decided that it's actually safe to return? Who makes that decision?
3: So in this case, uh, the Ohio EPA, um, I believe working alongside the federal EPA, um, were the ones that were uh, seeing that testing along with testing that was being paid for by Norfolk Southern. Um, And so within the agencies that were coordinating the response, those were um, the groups that were pushing out information to the public about whether things were safe to go back to.
1: And we should mention here, according to multiple reports from local news stations, CNN, and the Associated Press, residents of East Palestine are still smelling smoke and, and chlorine in the air. Zara, what could account for what residents are noticing? So, as the EPA
5: has described it, there can some of these chemicals, and when they burn, they can kind of generate additional chemicals, can have a odor threshold that is. Pretty low, but um, below the threshold that's actually considered hazardous. In other words, you can smell it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a danger. I will add that the official evacuation order was lifted at the end of Wednesday, February 8th, so two days after the controlled explosion, And I believe it was basically in response to residents being so concerned about coming home that Norfolk Southern, along with officials, basically began offering these voluntary in-home air screenings as soon as February 9th. And those basically have continued through today, so at least as of February nineteenth, at least five hundred and thirty-three homes have been screened, and according to the EPA, no exceedance for residential air quality standards have occurred. In other words, if some chemicals were found, they were not detected at levels below what's above what's considered dangerous.
1: Zara, the train derailment affected seven and a half miles of streams. It killed over thirty-five hundred fish. That's according to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. How the chemical from this spill affected the local environment in East Palestine?
5: I mean, definitely in the immediate area where the derailment is, there is visible kind of contamination, especially in Leslie Run and Sulphur Run, which are these two local water raids right next to where the derailment occurred. And it's a space where officials are saying, you know, telling residents, please stay away, and where some of those dead aquatic life has been found. Uh, I think it's a larger question of how large of an area has really been impacted by this. You know, these chemicals, despite the best efforts to contain the spill, did not completely work. We know through some daily water sampling that some of these chemicals have made their way into the Ohio River. But now, more than a week later, we're at the point where detections of those chemicals um, are basically past the point. They're so low. For example, it, the chemicals have dissipated so much within the Ohio River that they are hard to detect. Uh, so I think the major threat for people down water, getting their water from Ohio River, is largely considered to be past, although utilities are definitely taking this step to close off their water, using stored water to get their water. But locally, It is, I think, a real concern and an open
1: question. Samantha, first, has the EPA said it's safe to drink the water? Let's get to that first.
3: Um, Yeah, so they have said that the water that they have tested in the town, I believe at this point they have said it is safe, um, but they have said that continued well testing needs to happen. But... to Dr. Boyer's point, I think that there is a concern about what is being tested and and how that process is unfolding.
1: What is the proper way to test the water?
2: Yeah, I mean, there are a number of Different methods that you can use um, for water testing. You just take out an aliquot, you extract from it. You know, you, know, you can inject it into uh, most most protocols. Involve injecting it into a column that separates out individual components. Um, if something is dissolved in the water, then stirring it up isn't going to change the concentration. The concentration is going to be equal throughout the water um, if it's dissolved in it. Um, my concern is that we don 't necessarily know what's dissolved in it, and that's problematic for two reasons um, the first is that it makes it difficult for us to actually define what is in it like we don't know what we're looking for if we don't know the actual substance dissolved you know like we don't necessarily know what's from the spill and what's not and then we don't know the toxicity from long term exposure you know people are worried about and I'm sorry I'm going on here, but people are worried a lot about drinking the water, but there are other threats as well. If you take water and heat it up with a highly volatile chemical like vinyl chloride, you can actually have vinyl chloride come out of solution, which you then breathe. And that is the route of exposure, albeit at long-term, over long-term
1: and at high concentrations in occupational settings that has been been linked to cancer. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So first, there's the issue of not necessarily knowing what you're looking for when you're testing the water because the chemicals have diluted it to some degree. <laughs> also the question of long-term exposure. So maybe if you're drinking this water for a year, it you don't know what effect it's going to have on you. But then there's also the issue of changing the chemical composition of the water by, for instance, heating it. And if those chemicals are there, does it then turn into steam or release into the air and something that you're inhaling. Did I get all that right?
2: You've synthesized it much better than I did.
1: The EPA is the agency testing the air and water for toxic chemicals. Norfolk Southern, that's the company that owns the train that crashed, was conducting its own testing. Samantha, where should people turn for the results of this testing?
3: Yeah, you know, I think this is a really difficult question and speaks to this climate of confusion that has really kind of been initiated by the responding agencies since the very beginning. Um, You know, generally, I understand people's hesitancy to trust a private company that is responsible for the disaster uh, in the test results that they are putting out. Certainly, if you look back throughout our history in this country, there are examples of uh, companies with holding information um, and concealing information from the public that may harm their business in the future. And um, in this situation, normally we would say, yeah, trust the EPA. They're the agency that is created to protect the public in these types of situations. Um, I think where there is concern here is that there are, um, you know, other scientists uh, across the country, like, you know, as Dr. Boyer has been explaining, that are raising these concerns about the way testing is being done and what the EPA does or or does not know and what data has been made public at this point. So um, I think that there is cause for questioning the data that the EPA is putting out and the completeness of that data. Um, And so that really does leave uh, the public in a really difficult place in terms of where else to turn for trusted information.
1: Zara, anything from you?
5: I did want to add that it wasn't just the EPA that has been doing the water sampling. It's actually the Ohio EPA was doing a lot of water sampling as well as Orsanko. Which is this consortium of utilities along the Ohio River. And just as of this week, I believe, the EPA has launched this kind of nice website that actually has a bunch of these water sampling and monitoring sites all in one place. So up until now, you've had to check the Ohio website for what they're doing. You've had to check the US EPA website for where they're doing air monitoring. You've had to go to the Orsenko website to see what they're doing. And at least starting this week, there is this new landing page where there are interactive maps, and it is a little bit easier for anyone to kind of see the ongoing monitoring and some
1: of those results. We're discussing the train derailment in East Palestine. We'll be back with more after this short break.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon.
3: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one.
0: Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a
3: good birthday
1: even
5: if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from
1: NPR. Let's get back to the conversation. We got this question from Jane, who emails, how do people like me find out what chemicals are being transported on trains in the residential areas of where one lives? Zara, how easy is it to find out this information?
5: That's not that easy. I mean, it took several days just to get the manifesto of this train derailment that had occurred. Um, I think largely you might be able to figure out the types of trains that are running and there might be a description. The description for this Ohio train was, I think, general merchandise, and that's because it included everything from malt liquor to frozen vegetables to, as we're learning, some hazardous chemicals. So it's a challenge.
1: Zara, how common is it for hazardous materials to be transported by train?
5: I think it's pretty common um as you can tell it's there is actually a whole designation for trains largely or predominantly just carrying this material but then there are also trains like this one that derailed that aren't even really considered trains carrying hazardous material, material and have those additional kind of safety restrictions or rules related to this. This is something that, again, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine had mentioned in one of his press briefings, because there had been a lot of discussion about how certain safety rules, especially relating to brakes, had kind of been rolled back or um, pushed off during the Trump administration. And he'd pointed out that those wouldn't have necessarily even kind of been relevant here because this train didn't really qualify as that, even though it had, as we've now learned, 20 different cars carrying hazardous material.
1: Well, Tim asks, regarding the larger question of transport of hazardous materials, would it be safer to transport these materials over the road in trucks? Zara, is that something that's been researched at all?
5: It is definitely an ongoing conversation. In fact, it's one that's been going for several years kind of in the wake of some high-profile oil train disasters and derailments because one of the big alternatives to oil trains is pipelines as well as transporting by road. All of these different modes of transportation have different risks associated with it, and I do not think that train is necessarily the least safe, but there are things, additional safety measures that can be in place, and that is definitely a conversation we're going to see going forward.
1: Samantha, as people continue to watch this unfold and they're looking at TikToks and Twitter, any cautions that you'd give folks about the information they're receiving?
3: Yeah, I would. You know, from, again, the very start of this event, um, there has been widespread misinformation spreading, especially on social media, uh, even to the point of full on conspiracy theories that have um, gone viral. That is um, really frustrating, I think, for especially people who are in the affected area and are trying to look on social media for actionable information to keep themselves and their families safe, Um, And it's really difficult for people who aren't physically there to know what is and is not real when you're seeing videos that make it seem like there are, you know, chemicals um, visible on the water or, you know, these reports of animal deaths. What I would caution people to do is make sure that you are looking to trusted media sources. There are a number of reporters who are there on the ground that have a good track record of covering environmental-related crises like this, who are working to confirm and uh, help the public understand which of these viral images and videos are real and
1: which ones aren't. Dr. Boyer, the CDC is expected to begin searching for health risks in East Palestine as the result of the spill, what will they be looking for?
2: Um, well, you don't know, because we don't know exactly what the full range of intoxicants are because of the burn. Uh, that they did of the chemicals on the plant. So it's important to keep in mind that the nocebo effect is uh, very active here. The nocebo effect is if I say, I'm going to do something to you that's really painful, and then I do it, you're going to have more pain than if I told you that it's not going to hurt very much at all. The nocebo effect applies in toxic disasters as well, where people experience something, you know, like an itch, you know, maybe a change to skin color, a little bit of shortness of breath, and then wonder that it's related to the exposure that they just endured. So the important thing is gonna be not post every symptom that you have, but see a specialist. If you're short of breath, you know, get pulmonary function testing. If you have a rash, see a dermatologist so that it can be quantified. Um, they will be looking at a wide range of symptoms and a wide range of findings because we don't know exactly what we're looking for. Um, but it speaks to the value of long-term monitoring following
1: a toxic disaster such as this. And this is an ongoing crisis. I'm curious what you'll be paying attention to in, in the weeks and months ahead. You know, I'd be interested to look at
2: outcomes from monitoring. And, you know, we, we, we have like the little tubes that we can hang up that absorb things out of the air. But, you know, there are other things to look for as well. You know, like Honeybees actually might be really good measure of toxins toxins in the environment, particularly since a lot of these compounds are hydrophobic and incorporate in wax. The bees weren't flying at the time when it was there. So if there are beekeepers in the area and they change out their frames, you you can do an assessment of the wax, for example, to find out exposure. Um, If you have proof of a chemical and proof of its persistence in the environment, then you could go back and look for increased concentrations.
1: You could look at the mechanism of action and look for potential health outcomes in specific body systems. That's Dr. Edward Boyer. He's a medical toxicologist and professor of emergency medicine at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Dr. Boyer, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now, residents of East Palestine are expressing uncertainty over the safety of the air and water in the region. One resident, Desiree, spoke with reporter Tricia Mackey of Fox 19 in Cincinnati last week.
3: It was scary. We, I mean, we hear trains all the time, but when we heard that, we knew something was wrong. And then we seen that it was on fire, and we were standing out back, and the whole thing just exploded. So we just packed up and left, and we came back home Saturday, but it's been scary. Do you feel like you're safe here? No, not at all. Not with the chemicals and the trains running. I mean, I'm not okay here.
1: Samantha, what does communication between the Ohio EPA, um, the local government, any agencies that are involved, and the residents of East Palestine look like?
3: Yeah, well, it's evolved a bit throughout the course of the response. Uh, When the event first happened, the communication going to the public was really coming from. Uh, partially Norfolk Southern, but really from local uh, response agencies and specifically from the county. Um, And then as the kind of full scope of the situation became better understood, um, you start hearing more from kind of higher ranking officials throughout the state. Um, Of course, the governor of Ohio was at some of the early press conferences. Um, And then you also start hearing more about federal officials from various agencies that have been involved. You know, a lot of what happens in a response happens behind the scenes. Um, You know, away from where cameras are, it's happening in emergency operations centers. It's not something that the public necessarily sees happen other than really what's happening at a press conference. So um, throughout the entire response, there have been officials looped in from all three levels of government from this wide range of agencies. Um, But I think kind of their... Uh, visibility to the public has shifted over time.
1: Now, the Federal Emergency Management Agency sent a team to East Palestine this past weekend. What has FEMA's response been?
3: Yeah. So this has been a really confusing point for a lot of people. Uh, the this type of incident, a uh, uh, hazardous materials train derailment, is not like uh, kind of a typical disaster as the way the public probably thinks about it in terms of how our disaster policy works. So in this case, in terms of a federal agency that is responsible, this falls to the EPA. Um, they put out a statement yesterday confirming that they'll be using the authority in the what's known as the Superfund Act to hold Norfolk uh, Southern accountable for the cleanup uh, and the, the damages um, from this event. Normally, uh, when a disaster, you know, something like a hurricane or a tornado happens, FEMA is the federal agency that tends to take the lead. Um, And the response to those types of events goes through the Stafford Act, which is what um, gives FEMA their authority to act um, after a presidential disaster declaration is given. Um, There's been a lot of confusion, some back and forth with FEMA and the governor and a couple of senators over why a disaster declaration has not been given um, in this case it's because of the type of incident right legally this is something that needs to be going through the Superfund act again under the jurisdiction of the EPA as opposed to the Stafford Act under FEMA and the reason specifically that a disaster declaration would have potentially caused actually more confusion uh, in this response is that FEMA has to uh, has a law that says they cannot duplicate relief efforts. And in this case, because there is a responsible party, Norfolk Southern, um, FEMA, any aid that FEMA gave out that later down the road was found, Norfolk Southern was responsible. Residents would need to be paying that money back to FEMA. Mm -hmm. So essentially a complicated legal mess down the road. That said, FEMA has said that they've been in communication with um, the state of Ohio throughout this incident. And last Friday, they announced that they would be sending a senior federal response official along with an incident management assistance team to help with some of the kind of behind the scenes coordination efforts and to also start looking at a more long-term needs assessment in the community.
1: Well, and that that Makes me wonder how well prepared um, the, the, the train company was, it the, the state of Ohio, how well prepared they were to respond to this type of disaster, because this is what FEMA is supposed to do. They step in. When there's a disaster, they provide aid. How quickly have people been able to access what they need?
3: Yeah, well, one thing I'll, I'll clarify there is for any disaster, any type of disaster in the U.S., um, local agencies respond first. Once they're overwhelmed, that's when the state comes in. And then once the state is overwhelmed, the federal government steps in. So for me, actually, this event really points to the need for a more robust local emergency management presence in even small communities like East Palestine. Um, East Palestine is dependent on the county's emergency management agency um, for this type of response, and they're a, a small agency. And you can kind of see how quickly, when you look back at how the has unfolded, how quickly they became overwhelmed. Um, and that's an issue not only for the next train derailment, wherever that happens, but for whatever the next disaster is.
1: Well, that leads us to this message we got from Angie in Tucson.
3: I
0: had a question about similar incidents around the country on hazmat spills that may have occurred within the last few weeks. Here in Tucson, we had one on the interstate, which shut it down this week, and we don't have a lot of additional information on that. Wondering why these might not be reported in the national news and what you have to say about potential reporting of other incidents.
1: Now, the spill mentioned in that voicemail took place in Tucson, Arizona last week. A tanker truck crashed, spilling nitric acid. Another Norfolk Southern train derailed in Michigan last week, but officials said no chemicals spilled. Zara, how common are these types of accidents?
5: Well, I think these kind of small accidents that may involve one truck or uh like the other train incident in Michigan, which was only a 30-car train and only one of those cars had chemicals in it compared to this Norfolk Southern one in Ohio, which was a 150-car train and close to 50 cars either derailed or caught fire. Um, they're occurring kind of all the time, but whether they're actually releasing you know, dangerous material into the environment um, is not happening all the time. As you mentioned with the Michigan one, the one train that had toxic chemicals in it uh, did not derail um, and was actually able to kind of be taken out of the scene very quickly without incident. um, And in which case, there's not necessarily a lot of fanfare, though there's always investigations into kind of what caused those problems and if additional safety measures could be taken to prevent it in the future. As for why they're not always getting a lot of attention, I'll just make a point about kind of the crisis in in local news and that a lot of kind of local news departments around the country have been suffering layoffs and oftentimes uh, it's the environmental reporters, science reporters mm-hmm. have been among those layoffs in the past and so you may not necessarily have those reporters with that expertise on staff and it really takes a, a major incident like the one in Ohio to not just draw local attention, but really get the national media involved, too.
1: Frank emails, I don't understand why these companies cheap out on all safety precautions, whether it be the chemical industry, automobile manufacturers, or any other manufacturing process. It costs so much to have, so much more to have a disaster, both on people's lives and the environment. Samantha, what what safety questions have come up as a result of this most recent train derailment in East Palestine?
3: Yeah, I mean, this has definitely renewed, long-held conversations across the country about what safety regulations are needed, particularly on these trains that are carrying hazardous materials, um, and the responsibility of Congress to push back against Uh, the railroad lobby who has um, tried to prevent uh, and successfully, for the most part, prevent these uh, safety regulations from being implemented. Anytime I mention uh, the need for more regulations, I also want to emphasize the need for enforcement. Um, Certainly, I think as we see the lawsuits uh, kind of unfold from Norfolk Southern, there's a, a conversation to be had about Um, higher consequences for companies when they do not follow those regulations and ensuring that government agencies uh, are correctly overseeing and enforcing those regulations.
1: Well, U.S. Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is pushing for increased regulation on our railways, and he spoke with NPR's Morning Edition on Tuesday.
2: The biggest thing that I want to see from Norfolk Southern is a change in their posture toward rail safety. The rail industry has vigorously resisted so many rules and efforts to raise the bar on safety. Now, I want to be clear. The investigation into root causes is being led by the National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB is independent with good reason, and we will know more when they issue their final report. But it is not too soon to push toward a change in how industry approaches safety. And that's exactly what we're calling for today.
1: Zara, how is the Biden administration responding to this disaster? Well, I think this is something that Samantha sort of nodded to
5: before, that there can be a lot of people working behind the scenes, but then there's also the public response and that we've seen a shift in this. So we do know that folks from the NTSB and EPA were basically on the ground the weekend within hours of the crash. But there's been a lot of criticism of the Biden administration, you know, not being more present or at least not being more visible and not doing more. And it's clear within the last week that they have really ramped up their response, especially publicly. And so that really started with EPA Administrator Michael Reagan visiting East Palestine last week. Um, And then he's actually gone back or is going back today or yesterday, he's going back this week, and that kind of coincided with EPA announcing this order, cleanup order to Norfolk Southern, so putting in legally binding terms that they will be responsible for paying for and overseeing the cleanup, as well as reimbursing the EPA for all of the cleanup services they are providing to homes and businesses, and I think very importantly, that they will be available to members of the public for questioning, since there was kind of a concern or to do last week when it seemed like train officials had last minute pulled out of a public town hearing um, or town hall related to the incident. So they are trying to be more visible. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has also announced that he would like to go at some point. And that's all happening against the backdrop of as you already mentioned, FIBA sending people, the CDC sending people. And so there are a lot of different agencies who will have representation on the ground in East Palestine, you know, in the coming
1: days, if not already. That's Zara Hirji. She's a reporter covering climate for Bloomberg. Also with us, Samantha Montano, an assistant professor of emergency management at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She's also the author of Disasterology: Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. Zara, Samantha, thanks for joining us. Also, want to make sure to mention we did invite Norfolk Southern to join the conversation, but they declined. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit Lisa.com to learn more. That's L-E-E-S-A dot
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot
3: to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast
0: from NPR.